This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. Okay, this is a real special podcast. It's the 10th anniversary of Randolph Street Market. I'm here with Nina Ivan, Danielle Arnett, Kathy Finley, uh, Harry Rinker, Greg Willett, but I'm in the witness protection program, so don't broadcast that. <laughs> Sally Schwartz, Susan Klein Baghdad, and Al Baghdad. Wow. So let's all give Sally a big hand for her 10th anniversary. Hey. So Sally invited me out just for this podcast, and it's a real pleasure. (laughs) Sally, just a quick overview about Randolph Street Market for the people who didn't listen to you for the first podcast we did. Um, Started in, this is our 10th garden party. So it started on the street 10 years ago with this lady right here was my partner. When we started, the name of the Randolph Street Market, it started actually as the Chicago Antique Market. And this is Kathy Finley, who is was my partner and still my very wonderful friend. Here. Uh, well, Sally and I, what, 11 years ago, because it took a year to, in development. You know, we went all around the region to antique shows, literally booth to booth to booth. We went to New York, and literally we had to go... And, you know, antique dealers aren't the easiest people to persuade. So we did a sales pitch <laughs> in every booth. And, yes, we did, absolutely. We had to sell them on a market that was completely uh, untried and with no track record. Nobody wanted to come to Chicago. They didn't think a market would work. They didn't think people in Chicago had money. They didn't think people wanted antiques. And they were afraid. They were afraid. They wanted the customers. They we did have a car stolen on right. the very they, they first They weren't sure the customers. Right, right. It was, scary. it was very scary. And it was... But, of but course, now this neighborhood is completely developed. It's gentrified. It's very gentrified. But can I say that selling an antique dealer on coming to Chicago for the show was... We, we both agreed. It was, it was, like, so unbelievably difficult to just convince them. So, Sal, you have all these people here. Can you go around and first just hand the mic and just say what was special about why these people are here. Okay, well, can I start with Harry Rinker here, who I just admire forever, and his name is synonymous with the antiquing world. And That's what I've always wanted to be with synonymous, actually. <laughs> no, well, you know, I've been very blessed, Sally, because as a writer in the trade and not as a dealer and not as an auctioneer and so forth, I've been invited everywhere inside the business. And so I've had the privilege and honor of going to flea markets and street markets and every kind of venue and show across the country. And Randall Street has always been one of my favorites because I I think if you want to come to the one place where you see so much fun, this is a place. But anyway, so that's what I'm doing here, and great to be back. This is Susan Klein Baghdad, who's an author, and she can tell you more about her experiences here. Hi, I'm Susan Klein Baghdad, and I wrote the book Mid-Century Plastic Jewelry, and I used to write a column called Blingin' Things about costume jewelry and, jewelry and accessories. And it's great to see all the young people here at the market. That's what I'm really thrilled about. It means that, you know, the world of antiquing is just going to go on, and there's always new people out there who really enjoy the whole antiquing scene. There's always something new to collect, and it's always fun to be sort of on the edge of 
what's new, what's new to collect. But to be able to find something before the whole general public finds it or someone like Martha Stewart, Stewart brings it to the forefront and we all know about it, to say, I've been collecting that first. And that's kind of fun. I really enjoy that. Yeah, and it's so exciting to be here today. So thank you, Sally. Thank you for coming. So why don't you hand the microphone to your husband, Al? I'm Al Baghdad. Um, one of the things, and I think she's right about the young people here, a lot of the antique shows we go to, we're finding younger and younger crowd really appreciating the antiques. I cut my teeth at the appraisal fair, and I found when I got in front of a camera, I was a really big ham. I used to make love to that camera, and I had so much fun with antiques. But one of the things I want to say is that people, the people, the dealers and the collectors are really, really nice people. They like to share their knowledge, especially here at this show. If you have a question on what is this, where did it come from, they become very enthusiastic and they really enjoy telling you what it's all about. But that's that's my impression of the show. That's great. And it's always good to pass the knowledge to the younger people and why something is valuable. You know, makes it more interesting. I'm Danielle Arnett, and I covered this show for uh, the market when it was in its infancy, and it was so interesting that I could park across the street and find a parking space. Woo! Right there! <laughs> this time when I came, I circled the block four times, and I finally had to uh, give up to valet parking because there was no way I could find a parking space. It's a great crowd. And I'd like to say kudos to Sally for building this market. It has just grown into a phenomenon. Hi, I'm Nina Ivan. Uh, Sally and I have known each other a very long time, but I was working for a company for my entire life. And I was being interviewed upon my retirement, and there was an article in one of the local magazines and sat, one of the questions was, what are your favorite things? And one of my favorite things was the Randolph Street Market. Sally called and she said, can we have lunch? And I said, sure. And we had lunch and sat and chatted. And I said, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Well, if you know Sally, you don't do that. Uh, because uh, that was for almost four years. This is my fourth year with you, Sally. And uh, I've been with her ever since, and it's been a wonderful experience. And I've had great fun working with the dealers, working with clients, working with everyone that has anything to do with the market, and helping a lot of the vendors uh, perhaps do a little bit better presentation than they might think of doing, which they don't always love it when I tell them that. Uh, but I'll just say, go away. Let me redress your booth for you. And if you don't like it, you can put it back the way you had it before. Uh, I can assure you that it hasn't gone back the way it was before. Uh, congratulations, Sally. It's wonderful to be part of your organization and that we have become very, very good friends is more important. I just want to know who paid for the lunch. <laughs> I think she did. Yeah, okay. We all pay in the end, Martin. <laughs> I love you, Nina. Love you, too. I'm Greg Willett, and I've been a full-time antique dealer for 40 years. I knocked my first door when I was 10 years old, and I emphasized my whole career was getting stuff out of the trenches. Selling at the shows wasn't the best part of my, uh, my day until I found the Randolph Street Market. I've done shows all over the United States. I've done shows in France. I've done shows at the Rose Bowl. I've done Brimfield. There's never been a venue that I've enjoyed doing more than here, and that's because of the educated clientele, the friendly management, and there's really cute girls here as well. So I congratulate you, Sally, on 10 years, and I look forward to another 10 years of your continued success. 
Okay, a real special guest just walked into the tent. You may remember for the first 52 podcasts we had, Phyllis Gao. How you doing, Phyllis? I'm great, Marty. Great to see you. So I'm living in Chicago now. I've been at Leslie Heinvens for two years. And now the director of the Asian Works of Art Department. Today we're at the Randolph Street Fair, of course an institute in Chicago that I heard about even before I moved here. You know, I, I want to say, we're, we're doing this podcast under some kind of rough circumstances because you hear all this background noise, you hear some music, you hear the trains go by, you hear a lot of chatting out there, you hear some carts go by where they're hauling stuff out. But I think what, what's important for people on the podcast to understand is this is a destination. And that that's the Sally's credit. Sally understands that a flea market or a street fair, whatever you want to call it, isn't just place to buy and sell antiques or collectibles or decorative items. It's a place to come and be entertained. It's a day, place to come and have a great day out. And so there's music everywhere. There's a lot of activity everywhere. And so if you're going to hear it in the background, put up with it because that's part of the show. Well, it is really fun, and I want people to have a good time. I think shopping should be something that brings out your passions and makes you remember things. That's why this forum is so is so great for that. Who wants to sing about that or where antiquing they think is going to go because it's sort of the merger of retail and antiquing. Hi, this is Danielle. You know, to follow that thread, another thing I noticed, dogs here, children are here. It's family friendly. I don't know how many markets except family members. <laughs> okay. So and that is absolutely wonderful. I think uh, one of the things people think about when they come to antique shows is, is it stuffy? Are there really old things here? At this show, you can pick things up, and they're things that everybody can afford. And that's one of the exciting things about this show. I like the fact that you can mix a little bit of the old and the new. Old paintings with new furnishings. Okay, um, Phyllis, since you're in the auction business here, what do you think about the market in Chicago in general and who are the buyers? That is a really, really good, interesting question. We talk about it all the time. You know, Chicago used to be a big antiquing city. Um, there were antiques, antique malls, antique stores everywhere. They're everywhere you, you know you could find some way to pick up an antique. Um, hence the big merchandise mart fair. That's really what it grew out of, or, you know, that old tradition that was in Chicago. These days, not so much. I mean, a lot of the fair, the merchandise market fair is, the merchandise mart fair, excuse me, um, is made up of out-of-town dealers who will come in just for the fair. There are very few old antique stores left in Chicago. I can think of a handful who've been here for a long time, but that's really, you know, the exception, not the rule. I can talk about, I think, all the markets that Leslie Heinemann deals in because, you know, it's a small company. I, I keep track of what my colleagues are doing. And the Asian market in particular, the buyers are mostly, you know, 90% outside of Chicago, I would say. Many even overseas these days. Obviously, the Chinese market is booming, so the Chinese in China, literally, are buying back. It's exactly, repatriating, some people say, their, their items. And in terms of, you know, other other areas that we work with, furniture and decorative arts, I think also there's a mix. There, we have a, a big local draw there. Because of the Internet, you know, I think just like everywhere else, the market is at least half outside of the local, the local audience. Hi, it's Danielle again. You know, uh, writing for Maine Antique Digest, which is a pretty cerebral publication, um, 
I do a lot of analyses, and, and it is my personal thought that we have become much more of a, a striated type of buyer. We, we've gone into that. You have your checkbook buyer, and you have your emotional buyer. The checkbook buyer is concerned about status, more traditional, wants to protect the um, investment, etc. The emotional buyer buys what they like. They know what they like when they see it. And they have a, a gut connection with the merchandise. And I think that's what Sally gives them. They come here, and I see people saying, Oh, hey, look, I like that. Or isn't that cute? Or wouldn't that look great in the living room? Your checkbook buyer isn't going to do that. So when you talk about a differentiation in buyers, I think that's, that's my personal feeling. That's where we're going. Nina? I think one of the major things with the young people is the entire green uh, feeling of what we're going through now. There's nothing greener than vintage or antique. Uh, you're recycling in a wonderful manner. You are having things that are going to last a lifetime. Uh, things that we might have had as, as youngsters, uh, they find new. Uh, that we got rid of and, and wish we hadn't. Uh, but they're finding this is a new feeling for them. And the one thing I find at the market is uh, I think the reverse. I, I see a lot of very pricey things going. So I think it's, it's both of the above. But the most important thing to me is the recycling part of it. And you know we always think of recycling as, as doing paper and plastic and we have to put in another bin. Well, that's one way of recycling. But the best way of recycling is using and wearing. So that to me is a very, very important part of the market. And I started antiquing, I think, when I was born. I think I was still in my mommy. Uh, and I went to all the wonderful markets in the city. And what I love about Randolph Market and why I started coming, I don't drive. So for me to go out into the Burbs or to a mall in Rockford or wherever have you, uh, I can't get there. So this was a way for me to spend a wonderful day in the city and listen to L trains go by and hear music and people chatting and enjoying their day and finding wonderful treasures. And I can assure you, I'm here every month. I never, ever go home empty-handed, ever. And believe me, it's not things under $10. Well, this is Harry Rinker again. And one of the things is I think ourselves in the foot a little bit with the antique market in the 90s and early 2000s by People think we weren't affordable. We weren't an affordable place to come. People that are here at the Randolph Street today, it's about buying a chair, an accent piece for their house. And, and, and people always say, well, doesn't that upset you? No, because we get our hooks in them. And what we have to do is hook them. Once we have them hooked, we'll bring them up into the, the finer pieces. You know, so, so you buy a $50, but then you see a names chair. And maybe one of the keys to a place like this is to come and see not necessarily what you afford, but what you'd like to be able to afford when you're successful. And that's a big factor uh, at, at, at the market, too. Uh, I, I want to go back again to the comment about the young people. There is no market anywhere in this United States where there is as many trains that go by here constantly. Uh, okay, uh, I just want to I, I just want to say too that, that this is a market where you'll see from youngsters to teenagers to 20 and 30 year olds and such ethnic diversity. I, I've never seen a market like it. And anybody who thinks that we're not going to have collectors in the future, this is the place. Just getting back to one of the things Harry, this is Martin again, one of the things Harry just said, I spoke to a vendor inside 
who said he quit the antique business for six years. He quit right here. He threw his, his, the towel in, and uh, he came back, and now he's selling again. He said, I just had to sell everything and adjust my prices. And, uh, you know, if you, if you are selling in today's market, you're also buying in today's market. So there's still a way to make a living. And he came back, and he's very happy you did, and he's right inside. Who is that? He's the guy that does free uh, hauling for you sometimes. Nice guy. Steve, Steven. 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 Oh, I love Steven. Okay. Susan Klein Baghdad. I wanted to say that it's so nice that friendly atmosphere here. I mean, my mother dragged me to antique shows from the time I could walk. And, and you get the bug bites you. The antique bug bites you. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you might say, my God, my mother's a hoarder. Strange thing happens to you. You're walking around at a flea market one day and one brace comes like 500 brace. Right. It happens. Yes. And you, 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 and these, I, this is Sally. So you see these things on people that you care about when you're young and you don't really pay that much attention to them. And then somehow or other you end up with these items. And then it's all, all of a sudden like, wow, this really means something to me because somebody that I loved owned it. Like I started with my lighter collection and I ended up with three really cool cigarette lighters. And I, and I thought, what are these things? And I didn't smoke, but it was just, the, it was so neat. And I wanted things and I love to collect and have things. And I've always been a shopaholic from the time I was little. If I can get them over here because there's great alcohol and there's really funny people and it's fun. Once they're here, they realize that these items that they need, that they need for their homes and for their lives are made so much better than anything they're going to buy in a store. And that's the thing is they see stuff in these stores that are so expensive. It's like you buy a new car, you drive it out of the dealership and it's worth less. But when you come here and you buy stuff, the stuff you can buy and sell over and over and over again, it never loses its value or its appeal. Um, as far as the price points, I always tell the vendors here, have something in every price point because you really don't know. And you need something that's at a low price point because it gets people in your booth. If everything is expensive, they don't think they can buy anything with you. And, and also, I consider this market to be a vertical market. It's a hybrid. It's not an antique show. It's not a flea market. But it's all of those things. So the buyers that come in, the really top like costume jewelry designers, the Brett Bensons, he knows when he comes here, he can not only sell, but he's going to be able to buy really, really well. So they're all supporting each other and feeding each other. It's very self-sustaining. This is Greg Willett. Uh, one of the things I like the most about this market, I'll back up a little bit. Everybody's been talking about the old and the young, the changing market, what used to sell, what's selling now. That's what's important for me about this market. I can see the new ideas. I'm the one that's out in the trenches, in the homes, and it's in the basement. There's nothing, the only thing worse than the heartbreak of psoriasis is telling an 85 woman that her crystal and her dining room table aren't worth doodly squat. As you're leaving through the garage, you go, but that rusty metal workbench in the guy can pay you $200 for. It makes her day. It's supply and demand. The kids are demanding something fresh, and it's out there. We just have to figure out what they want, go get it, and put it in market. And that's what's great about a place like this. It teaches an old dog like me the new tricks. Uh, it's, it's Nina again. I 
one thing I don't think any of us have mentioned is the educational point of the market. All the dealers have funds of knowledge uh, that they are delighted to share with everyone, and you have to engage them in conversation. If you're picking up an item and admiring it, ask them about it. Ask them the history of it. This is going to educate you. The dealers love it. Uh, you become, then when you start coming back, they know you, you know them, you're going to buy a little piece here and there. And that's how you learn more about it. Uh, just picking up your lighter or whatever it is you collect and having that object and admiring that object, but how much more wonderful is if you have the history behind that and where the dealer got it, why did they get it, uh, what is the history of it, and they love, love, love to share that. So I think that's just another part of the experience of coming to Randolph Market. Sal Baghdad again. Um, I'm like Sally. I have a specific collection. I collect French pottery, Kemper pottery, and when I go to these shows, exactly what I look for. But when I leave the show, I often come out with a duck decoy or a piece of jewelry for my wife. It's just the fun of seeing these things and buying these things, starting a new collection. I have many duck decoys, I have many toy trucks, and I really enjoy them. This is a show where I can, where I can really come and, and add to my brand new collections. Hi, this is Danielle. Um, you know, I think I'll brought up a real great point. You need to educate the eye, and that's why you come to a show like this. You are going to see from A to Z and beyond, and uh, variations on each alphabetical letter, and that is what makes the show, uh, the market, educational also, besides talking to the dealers. So basically, you know, it's an assault on the senses. I mean, between the music and the food and the camaraderie, great. We have to respond to what people want. And and yes, the old there are the old traditional collectors are still around in, in a lot of areas, but market today has to be responsive to the latest decorating trends. It has to be responsive to what the young people want if we're going to survive. And you come to a place like this and you leave with a sense of renewal that, that it, we're working, that you know some people are making it work. Hi, Danielle again. I wondered if we could ask our dealer, what does he see happening in the market? Where's it going? What are the trends? What do people want? This is Greg Willett. I can start by answering that question by what they don't want. In general, and there's exceptions to every statement that can be made, but in general, they don't want ugly brown furniture. They don't want anything to do with the dining room. Glassware, stemware, linens, silver plate. What do the kids, they want something that's fun, new, and interesting. The Etsy website is a very driving factor in the market today. My friend is an artist and has an antique shop. They'll take a chair and turn it into a planter. They'll take a paint and turn it into a wine case. Repurposing. And that's, and that, and to an antique purist, that's kind of like heresy. On the other hand, when you're sitting there with a great antique nobody wants to buy, and you can turn it upside down or take a piece off and put a piece on, we're the recycling, we're back to marketing, and we're back to making money and paying taxes. So let me just tell you something, Greg. I just did a podcast with Kari Cuxi, and I got all this hate mail because she repurposes. So there are people that are still thinking in the purest manner that they think something will come into fashion, say, um, 30, 40 years from now, that we discard now. Um, Harry had a really good point. He said that uh, there's only so much stuff that we can save. 
So I understand that side of it, too. Just what's your opinion on that? I would respond that they should open museums. And secondly, for every piece that gets destroyed, it makes the remaining items that much more valuable. Danielle, I'll give you an an, an, uh, example. Uh, I wrote an article for a Maine Antique Digest on repurposing. And in it ended with, uh, you know, it was quite a long article. I thought it was okay. And uh, at the end I said, you know, the purpose, the person who buys a repurposed item because they like the way it looks, when they have enough disposable income, will probably escalate the taste and be your classic antique buyer. So this is how a point of entry for a lot of people. I cannot tell you, you know, this was a uh, the wrong um, uh, position to take for a lot of standard uh, classic dealers, okay, let's say it, long time, uh, really did not appreciate repurposing being legitimized. What I'll have to share with you is a story. I was in a home in Allentown, Pennsylvania one time, saw 20 cameo glass Dom Nancy lamps. And I'm saying, well, this is really interesting. I didn't know Dom Nancy, and they made all these lamps. And I said to the woman, "How? where did you get these? And she said, oh, my decorator and I went to New York, and we were looking for lamp bases, and I just love cameo glass. Got all these cameo vases and drilled holes in the bottom and put tubes up through the top. But the thing is, I always try to tell people on this recycling, if it's museum quality, don't touch it. But if mass production stuff and it's just going to go into a trash or a landfill, repurposes some use out of it. I mean, well, I mean, we're sitting here looking at these colonial, uh, these wonderful looking Chippendale chairs with orange vinyl on them. It even took me back a minute or two when I first walked in here before I sat. But, but I, but this is the thing. We cannot look down our noses at people that do this kind of thing, or we cut off a marketplace. We cut off a thing. And and I agree with you, Lee. Eventually, we're going to get them, and they're going to move up, and they're going to appreciate the finer things in that. Everywhere you look, there's great design. You just have to recognize it. I think the antiques speak to the... Does it represent the spirit of the age? Can you look at it and is it made in the 1950s? Was it made in the 1930s? You can spot it immediately, so that to me is what makes something a classic. But I mean, I agree with the repurposing of things, but also when I see people taking value costume jewelry apart, I say, oh my God, you know, do you realize you just took a $500? piece of costume jewelry but on the other hand i feel like if you want to buy something that's in bad shape buy it because the stone's valuable and if you have another piece just like it you can replace the stones inevitably things are going to fall out so you have a replacement stone which is a great thing i i had an email recently from someone that i'd like to just throw this question out there and see what you anyone can respond to it so what are you people going to do with all the beautiful stuff when the baby boomers start getting rid of their things or dying off and you're surrounded with all this beautiful stuff that's worth nothing? What are you going to do then? This is Greg Willett. Uh, a big part of my has morphed away from the picking and into what I call personal property situations. 
I boomers hitting the deck and I jumped on board the bandwagon. Right now, I'd say 50% of my business taking uh, mom and dad from their big house to their apartment, from their apartment to their seniors, and from the senior center to heaven. Every step of the way is a shedding process. Hopefully, the family comes in and takes the treasured items that they want. But it doesn't matter if, even if they're the big averages in the world, there's always items left, which is why I have a 30-foot dump truck. I've taken it to the landfill, and the last six weeks, it's been there 12 times. Now, I'm throwing away anything that's good, but people keep possessions that have no value. From the dump, we have the good and the, the St. Vinny's and the thrifts. From that, we have uh, flea market and junk shops. From there, we have antique dealers, high-end resale shops, estate sales. From there, you have dealers who will buy the Don Mancy vases and the fine French Campere. So, and it, it, as we go up to order, then we have the auctioneers like Jim Julie and Leslie Heineman. Yeah. It's Phyllis. Um, I mean, we're not, we're not, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. This happens every, every, you know, couple of decades. It's everything cyclical. Right now, you know, most of my clients are coming to me with their parents' items. You know, we have family estates. I guess it's the the parents of the baby boomers right now who really need to shed or who have already passed, and their descendants are shedding for them. But you know, there's just, it's always like this. It's a cycle in every estate, in every shedding process. There are saleable items. There are items that maybe are more or less saleable and desirable than the last cycle. But, you know, it's not it's not rock and science. We've done this before. Yeah, yeah but I want to take some exception with him about taking everything to the landfill. You know, I, I, I kept wondering, does an object ever get down to the point where it has no value? About Humble figurines, they sell at 10 and 20 bucks. And so ultimately they get down to where people will afford them and buy them again. And and you can sell good Hummels for 10 and 20 every week. But the point is that at some point that there's that recovery stage. And I, I, I'm starting to look at the market very differently than in, in the past because I'm looking at these bottom lines as to where they come back. First of all, every object was almost always utilitarian. So you could always out of a glass, you could always eat off of a plate, you could always do all of this thing. All that wonderful glassware gets down to a buck of glass. Somebody's going to buy it, and the cycle will start again. And and I, I think we sometimes lose that fact that we tend to take utilitarian objects and move the stuff bottles to hold stuff. A chair is to sit in. But, but at some point, maybe the chair has to go down to five bucks so you sit in it again so it can go up to a hundred bucks so you sit in it again. I don't know. It's Nina again. I I totally and completely agree with that. But people's taste level, I don't think any of us can discuss. I think that is an individual thing, whether it's something we all think is kitsch uh, or we think it's Dom Nancy. Uh, It is something that is the individual person's taste, and that can be gnomes, uh, which seem to be making a huge comeback. I didn't even know they had an original uh, wonderfulness, but now we have gnomes coming back into our lives. Uh, which is always lovely to have them. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, that's probably next. Uh, But there's something for everyone, and I think that's what makes Randolph Market an interesting thing. Uh, It can be a wonderful piece of knoll furniture, or it can be uh, mid-century modern, or it can be a piece of uh, older looks, or it's vintage jewelry, uh, or costume jewelry, or real, whatever it is. And all those things are here. 
everyone has their own taste level. We might not all like it, and we might not want to collect it. Uh, and who knows why people collect what they collect. Uh, it's individual taste. I happen to love Lily of the Valley. I don't wear it. Uh, I don't smell like it, uh, but I collect a lot of painted glass with Lily of the Valley on it because it appeals to me. And I have to stop it <laughs> because I can't have any more room. Uh, my father was an artist, so I collect art. And it is something that every piece means something to me. It may not mean anything to anyone else. And whoever is going to sell my things when I'm dead and gone, uh, no one would buy it as a collection. They might indeed want some of the pieces individually. But it's mine. I enjoy looking at it. Each piece means something to me. Either it was my father did it or as a friend of his or I had purchased it and I remember when I purchased it. I think that's what possessions are all about is there's a connection with it. It means something to you, maybe not to anybody else. But that's what makes it special, and I think that's the fun of it. Tastes are constantly changing, and that's what's really fun. When I was in my 20s, I thought Fenton glass was about the ugliest. It looks like something that was out of your grandmother's house, and all of a sudden I found a hand vase by Fenton, and I got really fascinated with it, and then I bought another, and here we go. There's another collection, but tastes have to change and as an art dealer 10 years ago i couldn't sell a nude and now they're very popular so that's how it goes well well you know we we, we talked about so much you mentioned recycling as as part of but we didn't talk about one other important thing that's here cheaper than new in a lot of areas in the antiques and collectibles trade cheaper than new totally agree that's the way to go let's all go shop Throwing this out, I'm going back a couple topics. just like to throw out for my syndicated column for Tribune Media, I'd say a good 70% of my mail is from people who inherited things that they could care less about. And the question is, what, what is this and what do I do with it? And, and that's a situation. I always tell people they have to educate themselves about what they have. Well, if you come to a mark this, you're going to see similar items. Odds are very good. Um, I think that's, and as the boomers age, that's going to become more and more of a situation. Uh, I, I think we should meet like once a year. This is a good antique think tank. What does everyone think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'll bag that again. I want to comment. Harry had said because he's right with these young collectors. And I, I tell young collectors if they're looking for dinner to get started instead of going to Marshall Field, or excuse me, Macy's, and buying a dinner where uh, service for one for $250, they can go to an auction house or they can come to a market like this and find a service for 11 service for 9 or a broken set and add for 200 to $250 and they have their whole table set. That's true. No well, barn well, you know, in, in 1972, I was the director of the historical side of York County, and that's where Fallscraft comes from. And I remember going out to the Fallscraft plant, seeing this stuff and saying, I hope I never have to deal with this in the antique business. Now I have to know about Fallscraft patterns. You know, I go into Pottery Barn, I go in, into Crate and Barrel, and I, think to my, and I go into Walmart, and I think to myself, is this our business in 50 years? I want to be dead and buried. <laughs> no, but it is. It is. It is. And, and I think 
I think the important thing for many of us here is we've learned not to be judgmental about this. There was a time in the trade when the purists looked down their nose, first on the collectibles, but then on all the, on the other stuff. I think all of us that have been in the trade over the last 30 years or 40 years that have followed this trade, that have commented on it and analyzed have learned one very important lesson, not to be judgmental, to understand that the most important thing is that they, some kids respect the past, people respect the past, and they want to save something from the past, and we are not in a position any longer to dictate what that is. Whatever that pleases them is the important thing. Thanks, Phyllis. Um, well, I, I, I feel like I should say something. I'm this new generation that, that has grown up with IKEA, Pottery Barn, etc. Um, have hope. Me and my colleagues certainly are just disgusted by, you know, the mass things that all of our friends around us seem to just love and pay so much money for. Our peers are slowly becoming educated because of this greening moment, because of the repurposing popularity. You know, I think people are really appreciating things that are not mass-produced and are not cookie-cutter, you know. They're a counterculture movement that will always appreciate it, and I think that's becoming more and more mainstream Antiquing is becoming more and more hip. Except they want to call it vintage. Right, they want to call it vintage, not antique. Antique has, you know, it's all stigma as a word, I think. But, um, but yeah, I think there's hope. <laughs> Don't worry. Phyllis, you've been very hopeful in this podcast. Yeah. I no, no, I want to keep singing. You gotta have hope. All you really need is... Is that the right song? I know. <laughs> okay, S Sally. Um, so you're going to be wrapping this up. And just kind of say, what has this 10-year experience been like for you real quickly? And th I want to thank you for doing what you do. It's, I mean, it's almost surreal. I, I can't even believe I've survived um, starting something at the height of the antiquing craze in 2003. And seeing all these other shows that I used to drive out to go to, just, just where they were printing money because they, people just were running out to these places and thinking that I'm going to start this thing and it's going to be just as big, if not bigger, because it's a city of 7 million people and I'm going to retire in two years, I'm going to be floating on a yacht and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it just all changed. And it was just watching sort of the change the way a decade can change and the way people's tastes change. And when I started this 10 years ago, there was no social media. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. And the only way that I could get the word out was with cards at antique shows and in these giant ads that I would have to buy in the Tribune. And you're buying advertising to try and hit people that are never going to come in a million years, but that was, that was the only way you could get the word out in a town this big. So now with social media, it's just, it's incredible how you can reach people. You can reach niche markets. You can sort, I'm advertising now for the show completely differently than when I started. People that come to this show really reinvent how they present themselves, how they, oh my God, you got a new tablecloth. Beautiful. Good job. And then people like Nina Ivan, who I brought in here to help educate people on how things sell in a retail environment, because I think it's cleaner and the stuff doesn't look like junk. So if you want to get a price, you need to make it look like it's something that people are going to want. And then I always tell people, just make sure you have enough variety and um, don't make it too cluttered unless you're really willing to sell it cheap 
And everybody has a strategy, and I like that. But I also like that there's people that are really experts, and I see that there's certain categories like Sterling or Flow Blue where there's going to be really dominant. There's going to be one or two really, really dominant dealers that are going to be coast-to-coast, and those are the ones that go and hit all the shows because they've got the supply and they've got the customers and they've got the reach and they're keeping a mailing list and they're communicating with email. And I think everybody else is just trying to sell at the same price and it's just, it's really hit or miss. So I think consistency is really important and innovation and just working at it, just trying as hard as you can and not, you know, being smart and surrounding yourself with really great people. And I love all of you and I appreciate all of you. And you all have given me the knowledge and the experience because I've been reading your columns and what you've been writing. How do you think I learned how to do what I do? It's because I read people who are much smarter than I am about what they know. So I don't really know that much about antiques, but I know they're really pretty and I love them. And I've got some of them, but it's, it takes you people like Danielle and Phyllis and Nina and Martin and Harry and Greg and Susan and Al. Wow. Um, to just teach me about the thing that I'm doing so that I really love it even more. And it's, it is the educational part. It comes back to the education. This is Martin Willis with the gang here at the Randolph Street Market. And happy anniversary, Sally. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.